Welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. We're glad that you could join us this week. Uh, I'm in the chair in studio again this week, and Dr. Cogley will be joining us later in the show, uh, where we'll give a little bit of attention to the uh, discussion around a vice presidential running mate uh, for Joe Biden. Now that it's assured he's wrapped up the nomination uh, and moving toward the convention in the summer, uh, the discussion is around who will be his running mate and what impact that will be. So Dr. Cogley will join us for that. Uh, but up first today, uh, we are joined by Dr. Dustin Edwards, who is an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Biological Sciences here on the Tarleton campus. And our focus, of course, last week and this week has certainly been on the pandemic that is happening around the globe. But especially here in the past week, we've seen the impact of this across the United States as different areas, different regions, cities are struggling to respond to this, as we're seeing in some places the challenges of providing health care, emergency health care uh, in, in certain situations, and, and just the concerns in general that people have as we've seen government at all levels respond to this in a variety of ways. And so one of our uh, uh, a focus that we have on this show is getting you information. How, how do you get in touch with the kinds of information you need to analyze, understand what is happening, especially in terms of government and politics in our country, uh, but also on these critical issues as, as public health is a, is a major issue uh, within the realm of public policy. Uh, I teach a class on public policy at the graduate level, and one of the things that uh, we did was adjust some of the assignments to really look at this because of that intersection between public administration, public policy, uh, and public health. Uh, but again, the focus here is on information. It's on using the resources that we have here at Tarleton State, and we're, we're glad to have Dr. Edwards uh, on with us today. He has his PhD in biomedical sciences from the Baylor College of Medicine, and he teaches courses in genetics, uh, in virus isolation, in bioinformatics, and vaccines. And so all of these areas touch very much on what is happening around us, what is happening in our country and around the world. Welcome, Dr. Edwards. Tell us a little bit more about your background and uh, really how your work, your research, and your teaching uh, connect with what is happening. Uh, as you said, I got my Ph.D. at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston at the Texas Medical Center, and I studied retroviruses. When I was growing up, the big pandemic we had was HIV, and so whenever I was a, an undergraduate, or actually I was in high school, that's um, it, all we ever talked you know, was talked about on television and in the newspapers. So as I was making my way through college, um, high school and college, I decided I wanted to study uh, HIV and, and other the uh, viruses that seemed unstoppable. And uh, I studied HIV and, and another related virus called HTLV. After that, I went to work at the National Laboratories at the National Institutes of Health, where I continued that work. After that, I came to here, and we continued to work with retroviruses. Um, some of the focus has been on avian retroviruses. And we are also uh, have started working with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute with uh, discovering new bacteriophages, which are viruses that can be used to treat antibiotic-resistant infections. And all the classes that I teach all relate together towards this, where uh, students learn about uh, cell and molecular biology. You have to know how it works in order to, to know how, how viruses are breaking it. And um, from there, we have classes in virology, classes in vaccines. We teach students how to um, isolate and discover new viruses, how to use uh, current tools such as bioinformatics to characterize those viruses. And as far as like the current pandemic that's going on now, we're looking at, we're starting to see secondary infections that are occurring. And so some of these um, bacteriophages, which are viruses that can, can kill bacteria, could be used to, to treat some of those patients. So it's something that uh, definitely making its way around uh, social media right now and how um, how researchers like us can kind of help with this current pandemic. Well, Dr. Edwards, uh, I, a lot of the reading I've been doing, being involved in, uh, uh, like I said, public policy and kind of analyzing it from that angle, a lot of the things that, that we've seen uh, or, or the things that I've engaged with have 
shown that that scientists in these er areas, scholars in these areas, have said that something like this was on the horizon. That that there was some anticipation that at some point uh, we may see, even even though we've seen smaller scale things like uh, Ebola and the um, uh, SARS and other things that have happened just in the recent past, certainly nothing of this magnitude. Uh, what uh, could you give us a little background on that and just how you know what really goes into the the analysis and, and thinking about uh, how something like this uh, could happen and, and now we're kind of right in the middle of it. Right. So yeah, there was a couple of papers published. Oh quite a few years ago now, um, in around 2013, 2014, 2015, that indicated that there were coronaviruses that could have mutations that would allow it to infect both animals and people. And so a little bit of a warning went out because SARS had happened 10 years previously. And so with this, and SARS is a corona, uh, a very similar coronavirus. And so there was kind of a, a little bit of a warning that, you know, we saw it once before, and it very much is possible now. So they, they did a, that was all in the laboratory indicating how it could happen. And then uh, there was a follow-up study that showed that in bats, there was a coronavirus that could um, use a receptor called um, ACE2 that we have. And so there was definitely this, possibility of a coronavirus moving from animals to people. And we've seen this before with other viruses um, as, as, as people move into new you know, into new areas, uh, as we expand our population, um, you end up using, you have these meat markets that contain wild animals. And so we saw it in Africa with retroviruses, uh, which with those HTLVs um, that I was studying before, which uh, the monkeys would have the virus, and then uh, in the process of interacting with the animals, either while hunting with hunting them or and processing them for the market, uh, you can end up with cuts, or you end up with um, some of the animals' fluids in your in their in the mouth of the of the hunters or butchers, and so you can actually have the transmission of the virus that way. And so there has been you know some warnings going on for a while now. Um, of course, the previous administration dealt with um, H1N1 influenza virus, and uh, lessons were learned from that. And so we've had um, a couple of administrations previous to this one that had dealt with pandemics and had started to kind of build a playbook for it. And then, um, and then we're at the current administration, which seems to have uh, ignored some of those, uh, those warning signs. Right. We, we've seen that with, uh, and we've talked about this in other areas and agencies of government where uh, this kind of focus on, on trimming, uh, trying to reduce the size in certain departments and, and so forth, that, uh, that, that that has had an impact. And, and I assume that's going to be a topic for analysis uh, uh, for years to come in terms of looking at what had happened before, what's happening now, and how uh, government, at least at the federal and even at the state levels, uh, can be prepared. Last week we talked about the public health system in Texas and the challenges there in being able to handle uh, something like this. And part of that is the severity of it. I mean, I, I think people, part of the challenge that we saw early on in this was that uh, uh, people making comparisons with flu and with, with other uh, 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 epidemics, pandemics that we've had in the past that may not have uh, had it had such a significant impact on the U.S. population, uh, but we see with this a level of severity of of impact uh, on on people uh, at, at various stages, various health conditions. Uh, what what's the kind of a little bit about the science of that in layman's terms? What what is that? How do we help people understand what makes this different from say like regular flu or? Uh, uh, some some of the other uh, epidemics we've seen in the recent past. Okay, um, one of the there's a couple of main differences. One is where the virus is able to infect, and so there's some viruses that can infect the upper respiratory tract, and some viruses that can infect the lower respiratory tract. And some of that has to do with the differences in the temperature between your near near your opening versus near your core. Uh, the new coronavirus can affect both the upper and lower respiratory tract. 
In addition, there's a long incubation period, uh, you know, relatively long. So it can be a week or two. And so you can walk around and be infectious but not have any symptoms yet. So you're able to spread it. Uh, In addition, with some of the testing that's coming out, we know that some people are just asymptomatic, meaning that they have no symptoms. And so they're going about their day and they're not getting sick and they're able to spread the virus to other people. And then you start to look at at the people who are being severely um, affected, and many of them are going to be elderly people. And you have uh, this thing called a cytokine storm in which there is an an overreaction. Your immune system responds way overboard. And so as, as the virus is replicating and damaging cells in the lungs, you're going to have an immune response to that site. And at that point, the immune system then causes even more damage as it recruits more and more um, of its members down there. So, so we've seen this spread like that. I mean, this is just uh, uh, the, the rapid pace of this across the globe. Uh, and some of the, the research that's been conducted that we see coming out in the, uh, in the last week or so uh, has looked at this and trying to kind of understand where we stand on uh, actual cases, infection rates, and mortality rates, and so on. And so some of these have pointed to, uh, like what you're saying, that, that there's the infection rate is probably so, so much higher than confirmed cases. And part of that is trying to determine actually what that is, because until you have that kind of data, you can't determine a, an, an accurate mortality rate and then compare this to other um, other uh, uh, viruses that we've seen. Uh, on, in terms of that research, how, how beneficial is, is that in terms of really understanding this? How challenging is it? I mean, I would assume it's very challenging when, like you say, say there are people walking around that are asymptomatic and how do you actually determine an, an infection rate? Uh, and then we possibly could get into a little bit of talking about what role does that kind of information have when we're looking at our policymakers at the federal and state and local levels to, uh, trying to make decisions uh, based on that information. There's going to have to be some additional testing later in order to, to try to acquire those numbers or as, as the virus kind of continues to make its way across our country and we step up the number of tests we do. Um, that's when you're going to start to get more more data, more numbers. Um, what we've seen with other countries that have, uh, you know, smaller geography, still a lot of people, but a smaller geography, so they can, they can get testing done, is that the infection rate appears to be lower than we initially, than the the initial data showed, because, as you mentioned, there a lot of people were asymptomatic or. Um, or you go in and you think you had symptoms, but it turned out that, that they were negative. So the, the, I think the, the infection rate will go, those numbers will go down. Same with the fatality rate is, is likely to go down. Um, as far as the people who have symptoms and are being hospitalized, so there's a, a lot of numbers on that, and, and the one that seems to be sticking out the most is around 15 to 20% of people who have symptoms um, are being hospitalized. So I don't know if that number will change or not because um, if you have symptoms, you're, you're probably getting tested. And so I think those numbers are valid. Um, those numbers will hopefully change in future years or if there's a second wave. So once people start to have um, immunity, start to develop herd immunity, so hopefully we can protect uh, those that are at risk a, a little bit more, even just kind of passively, just by um, having having the virus, having our immune system react to it, it's just will we'll stop other people from from having the virus pass through us and to them. Right. I've heard some early uh, or, or seen some things as well that says that this doesn't mutate as quickly as the uh, uh, as as such certain flu viruses, where uh, it, it would take it um, uh, longer for uh, it people who have a, an immunity to it that if this thing does change at some point in time we might be better prepared uh i'm not sure how i mean this is That's all of correct. this is coming very early and and yeah. but some of that kind of information helps people look at this long term how do we deal with this on yeah, an well, ongoing basis yeah that's actually a positive thing for for all of us and so uh, the the data right now is showing that the virus does not mutate very quickly uh 
the good news about that is that we can probably develop a vaccine that will be good for a long time. So unlike, say, the, the flu vaccines, which have to be you know, uh, analyzed every year, this one, once it's made, uh, should be good for a while. And so if you're a policymaker, yeah, it would make sense to, uh, to try to get this vaccine produced and, um, and then go about distributing it to people. We see in that in that policy realm the the challenges that uh, I mean I've watched several of the press conferences that Governor Cuomo has had out of New York, which seems to be the the hardest hit area in the country at the, at the moment, and the just the way that this is overwhelming uh, health resources, and so there's there's definitely an impact here that says that that in terms of public health systems, in terms of collaboration between governments and health systems, both private and public. Uh, there are some significant challenges there and, and just some immediate uh, needs that whether it's ventilators or masks or other medical equipment that, that are needed. Uh, but how, how does this, um, you mentioned one about putting an emphasis on finding a vaccine, putting the resources there. Uh, what other, uh, where, where do you see other connections here with the role that uh, government at the state, federal, or even the local level have in in engaging with something like this. I mean, you, we talk about this in our uh, classes in political science and government where you elect people to go uh, to represent you to make decisions, and, and most of those people have a working knowledge of about four or five areas. Uh, outside of that, they're not experts in, in many things, and so something like this comes along, and it, it's very challenging because you have people who – are trying to make decisions that are in the best interest of the country, of their their states, their constituents, and their uh, their citizens in their their uh, localities, uh, but yet they don't they don't understand uh, necessarily all the implications of this. What what does someone in your field bring to that that dialogue that helps them to kind of work through this and and try to make the best decisions possible? Yes, I think. Um I would like to praise our local government, local businesses, um, the local schools and the universities. So they acted very quickly on this matter. So they took um, an evidence-based approach. They, they saw the numbers. Um, I think they had advisors. They were able to make a decision before it got bad here. Um, they're going to have to deal with the economic implications of it later, but they were able to to protect people now and get people into the habit of thinking about these things. So, you know, you know most people don't walk around thinking about viruses and pandemics uh, the way that, for example, uh, someone like I, I do. Uh, so just getting people to, to be mindful of it's hard. I think here at the local level that people have a, a higher trust in their officials. Uh, we see them. Uh, I think that's one difference. They're, they're real people. At the federal level, uh, I'm never going to meet Donald Trump. I might meet the mayor, though, but I'm never going to meet Donald Trump. And so, and and then they get. I'm sure they have many more advisors. They're probably having more. Uh, a lot of people on the left side of their ears saying, "Hey, we need to do these things," and another person on their other side saying, "Well, we need to do um, something opposite of that." And so, uh, it's got to be hard. It's got to be hard having having to make those types of decisions. Oh yes, definitely. We had uh, uh, Mayor Doug Savine the uh, here in Stephenville in the studio here a few months ago, and we talked about uh, uh, paving roads and on the cost there, and and what the needs were, and what what happens with a, a situation like this is it it it's such a dramatic shift in focus. I saw this after nine eleven. I, I was in New York City when when that happened and worked with a number of different groups uh, post 9-11 and the recovery efforts. and But you you begin to see a lot of shift in, in policy and focus, especially on homeland security. I mean, you had the creation of a whole new department of government. Uh, but the, these kinds of events uh, shift focus for a period of time and often divert resources from other areas and other needs. That's probably going to happen here. I, mean, I think we'll see this at all levels of government. Uh, with your your background and experience with this, where do you think some of the the very critical needs will be going forward that that policymakers and and uh, local uh, to, uh, to federal officials will need to uh, give attention to in the in the months and years ahead? 
Well, immediately, uh, my understanding is that there's a high need for ventilators. Uh, many of the, the car manufacturers are currently making ventilators. My personal opinion is if, if these hospitals need ventilators to protect society, then the federal government should do everything they can in order to implement that. Um, as far as uh, future policies, <clears throat> it's one of those things that will probably happen after the fact, after all of this is over with. Um, see where things may have gone wrong before. Um, this has happened with, for example, oil. So we, we have an oil reserve now. So And, and this does occur with, in healthcare as well. We have vaccine stockpiles. And uh, after all of this is said and done, we can probably go back and look and see where we had problems at, where were there issues with supply chains, um, what industries were affected most so that you can set aside kind of an um, uh, assistance fund for that. Uh, right now, we're, uh, I guess it's the, the tourist industry is being hard hit. Um, mm -hmm. Restaurants are being hard hit. And so it, it's things to consider later. Uh, of course, there's also a great opportunity to modernize um, certain industries as well. So I've been seeing uh, some very innovative solutions. Well, and, and seen, speaking to that, I've seen the stories of people uh, making everything from masks, masks to face shields in their homes just to, to contribute to the effort. Now, that, it's, that's an well, interesting... Well, you can print at home. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's just an interesting dynamic here to see that something like this, when you go back you know, a century to the... Uh, the influenza uh, pandemic, and, and then you move to this point in time where people have this level of technology at their fingertips to be able to contribute in some way. Those are those are very inspiring, but also uh, interesting uh, in terms of the modern age that we live in <laughs> and, and how you respond to this. Um, uh, as, as we as we kind of close in, in looking at this, uh, I know you and your in your research and you try to get information out there. Uh, for your students and the public, uh, you have a podcast, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how people might be able to access uh, that uh, podcast? Yes, we have a podcast called Germomics, and you can access it at germomics.com or it's on um, iTunes or, or throughout. And it was initially developed as a way of teaching to non-biology majors about the uh, impact of pathogens on society, so how viruses and bacteria have changed the course of history, and in some regards how history and policies can affect um, how, how viruses can spread or bacteria can spread. So we'll probably be talking about this one um, next year or the year after once, once all the dust settles and we can kind of analyze it more. Uh, the very first podcast we did was actually on SARS and uh, about how we learned um, from that and how it affected all, all types of, all, in, all parts of life. You know, even uh, uh, soccer matches were moved you know, out of China into, into other countries. So it affected sports then the way it, it affects sports now. Uh, we had to make decisions on personal freedoms versus what was good for the whole. Um, I mean, at the time, it seemed kind of invasive, somebody taking your temperature as you walk through through an airport. But now it's one of those things that we kind of want to do. Uh, should you stop air travel? Um, should, you, should you have economic sanctions on a country that doesn't um, participate in helping? So the, there's a lot to it. You know, life's, life's very complicated, and, and, and everything's kind of woven together now. So uh, one... You affect one one part of of the world, and it may affect some other part of the world. Well, and what we're seeing too is is the the tension between, as you mentioned, the the level of freedom of the individual, and then of course the rule of law is how how strong is that uh, kind of social contract uh, to live by the rule of law to, and then how that is applied and, and navigated through a crisis like this. This is always an interesting. Uh, element to people who are in uh, public policy and political science and so on uh, because it really tests the, the the strength stability and security of uh, a society like ours uh, to oh, see does. how it people yeah and, and how they'll respond and how they do they feel secure do they do the, is the level of trust there to be able to follow the direction uh, of uh, elected officials and yeah. and for how long like right I, right 
walking around town, you see everybody kind of abiding by the guidelines, but how long can we keep it up? Right. Um, it's exhausting. Yes. Yes, very much so, especially as open and free as our society is. Well, uh, Dr. Edwards, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, this has been very inform informative and will be helpful for our listeners. Uh, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing here at Tarleton State with our students, and uh, we'll look forward maybe in, a, in, in the near future to having you back as we get through this crisis and, like you said, have more to analyze and, and how this might impact uh, public policy, government, and our lives for uh, years to come. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you. After the break, we'll be right back with Dr. Cogley and more Cogley and Morrow on politics. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Politics can be confusing, but Cogley Amaro have your back. Follow them on Facebook. Search Cogley Amaro on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogley Amaro is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on politics. I'm glad to be in the studio today. And of course, here on the Tarleton State University campus, uh, we are practicing uh, physical distancing. I don't, li I don't like the term social distancing, but uh, Lance and I are here in the studio and we're about six feet apart. Uh, Dr. Cogley is about 600 feet away from us in his office uh, so that we could make this work, but we wanted to continue to bring you Cogley and Morrow on politics uh, each week as we have numerous issues that we are engaging with and just uh, want to offer perspective that we can, both from us, from our special guests like we had with Dr. Edwards on the show today. Uh, but we turn now to, to get back to a topic that we, we looked at uh, a little bit last week. I gave some attention uh, to this going solo uh, in the chair, but we had been at the, the weeks prior to that uh, following this dramatic transition in the presidential nomination process for the Democratic Party with uh, this just dramatic change on Super Tuesday that put Joe Biden in the front, and they continued to follow that uh, the following week with successful primaries. Now we're in a kind of suspended primary process here, uh, which uh, has its benefits and its, uh, uh, its challenges. Uh, Nathaniel, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you here today. It's good to have a, a sounding board and, uh, and, and as well as hear some of the, the insight that you bring. Uh, what do you see are some of those challenges uh, right now with uh, the focus being certainly on the, the pandemic and, and responding to the needs of people and uh, the health uh, challenges in the health system, but knowing that here we've got a process that's ongoing that is set for a November election. Yeah, it's been very interesting. Um, Biden certainly had established a lot of momentum, big turnaround for him, and uh, he was on pace to get a majority of delegates and wrap up this nomination. But what we've seen with this pandemic is a lot of states have delayed their primary process. Uh, Ohio delayed, Georgia's delayed, Louisiana, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Indiana, Kentucky. We'll see a lot of other states that come up delay and try to go at the last minute. So that means um, Biden is kind of in suspension here. He has yet to wrap up the nomination, although everyone assumes he will when it comes back. Um, they had a debate on March 15th with no audience because of the pandemic. And um, there was some substance there. Uh, Biden was asked a question about uh, women within his administration and policies affecting women. And he gave a very interesting answer that I think was kind of headline news when we think about this campaign going forward. So we should have that audio clip. Number one, I committed that if I'm elected president, have an opportunity to appoint someone to the courts, will be a, I'll appoint the first black woman to the courts. It's required that they have representation now. It's long overdue. Secondly, if I'm elected president, my, my cabinet, my administration will look like the country. And I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. There are a number of women who are qualified to be president tomorrow. I would pick a woman to be my vice president. Number three, 
I'm the guy that wrote the domestic violence law, and I'm the guy that put in the, the prohibitions that no one who abuses someone else should be able to own a gun, period. They should not be able to own a gun. I would get the boyfriend exception uh, uh, amended. Now I've gotten it passed that if you are you get a stay away order from a court, you have a child with someone, you cannot own a gun. No one should be able to own a gun who has abused a woman, period. Mr. Mr. Vice President, if I could just follow up. Just to be clear, you just committed here tonight that your running mate, if you get the nomination, will be a woman? Yes. All right, Eric, I mean, you hear that was kind of three things. They're all kind of, uh, uh, two of them very newsworthy. Number one, he said if he is, when he appoints someone to the Supreme Court, it'll be specifically an African-American woman. I don't know that we've seen someone telegraph uh, the, the gender and ethnicity of their Supreme Court nominee so specifically before. Right. And then otherwise, his VP nominee selection, which technically is selected by the delegates at the convention, but usually the presidential nominee has you know tremendous influence on that, will be a woman. Um, and I don't know that we've also seen that telegraphed so clearly beforehand. We have in the past experienced two vice presidential candidates candidates who were women, Geraldine Ferraro in 1984 and Sarah Palin in 2008. But I don't know that the uh, presidential nominee telegraphed that well ahead of time. So this was rather headline stuff. I'm not sure why he needed to telegraph it. It might have been stronger just to do it when you do it. But um, it's, it's pretty uh, interesting. It's got people speculating on the shortlist for his VP selection. Well, it, it does. And I, I think there was a uh, well, and it's hard to tell with Joe Biden. Is this something that he's just saying at the on the spur of the moment, or if it's something that was planned? But I think it it, it was something that that needed to be out, at least to his benefit. Uh, the anticipation or the expectation uh, of this, it may have been something that because of the suspension of the primary process and to keep things in the news cycle, so something of this nature, it's very clear that this would uh, elevate this in the news cycle, even with all the the uh, focus on the pandemic. Uh, if you look back, those uh, choices before, it, it, there was an intention of having an impact, and an impact that then propelled someone from the convention uh, through the general election. Neither were successful, uh, as we look back at that. Uh, so that, that uh, impact was not necessarily uh, uh, as significant as, as they wanted it to be. And so I think there's a couple of reasons why to ha have it this early. And I think also it uh, helps to shore up a very diverse constituency that Biden will have to bring together uh, to win the election. It just shows me a little bit of weakness even in the primary process, because I do think, yeah, the, the VP selection is going to be important and it may consolidate important support in a state or with a demographic group. It just seems like usually previously when you select a VP nominee, you say they're the most qualified person for the job of all people uh, without necessarily telegraphing, uh, you know, a gender, you know, goal in mind. So I just, I just don't know the reason behind maybe uh, coming out with this that it's going to be a woman before you actually select someone. I think it might have been stronger just to wait until the selection. You know, pick, pick, pick whoever you like, uh, even a woman, and say they're, they're just the most qualified. Um, so it's interesting that he kind of is telegraphing ahead of time. Yeah, and we'll see. I mean, what the pick, who the pick is, and then what are the challenges, as we saw with Sarah Palin, uh, following her uh, her selection, and then a number of issues and challenges that that may have diminished the significance of that of that pick. Uh, but going into it, uh, it, it I think it's playing the political side much more than it is looking at uh, the level of uh, qualifications. Uh, I think the yes, there are certainly women out there who who are qualified, but I think this is a, a very good case of of politics at play here where. It, it is the the optics of it it's the uh it's it's getting into the news cycle at a time when it's that's very very challenging given the crisis but then on the other hand it's also trying to reach out to uh certain constituencies to say hey i'm i'm i hear you i'm on board with you we're gonna have you're gonna be represented in this administration yeah two things with a vice president one you want someone who's ready to be president but two you want someone who can help you win um, so both of those calculations may be going on. Now, we talked beforehand, I think there were four 
on your radar as you've looked through this? I got six on my radar. I'm, I'm first interested in who your four are, and then maybe I'll add two. All right. So my, my four, uh, uh, and I'll start. I don't have these in any particular order, uh, but the Nevada Senator, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, is on my list, uh, followed uh, by Gretchen Whitmire, um, who is the uh, governor of Michigan, and then Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris, which were two candidates uh, in the uh, primary that had dropped out and both have indicated their support uh, for Biden. I, I think in looking at the field that those are the four that are uh, positioned in some way. The, the, and, and part of that is weighing the political benefit of each of these, along with a level of qualifications uh, that would be able to, to shore up uh, concerns about Biden, maybe his health. That's already a line in this vice presidential discussion uh, that several uh, uh, stories have, have put in there that part of Biden's conversation is having somebody in there if something happens to him. I mean, that's I don't see how that's helping him <laughs> to be broadcasting that and saying, well, what if I get what my son had or if I if if, if I fall ill, we need somebody who's qualified. Um, again, that's that's been a, a challenging point in his candidacy. And so uh, anyway, but if we look at it that way, I, I think for me, those four are, are, are very strong possibilities. Well, I agree. And it's interesting, even Biden talking about that, that someone's going to need to be able to take over the presidency. I kind of hinted at at health concerns in a previous episode. Um, Joe Biden would be by far the oldest president ever elected in history. And and President Trump is also in his 70s, but he's a solid four years younger, which is a whole term younger. Um, So it's interesting that that's even discussed. I will point out the 20th Amendment means even a a vice president-elect will become president if something happens to the president-elect in that cycle. So there's just uh, a lot of importance on this pick, given the age dynamics and health dynamics of former Vice President Joe Biden. So as you look at these, Eric, you brought up Catherine Cortez Masto. This is someone kind of off the radar in terms of the presidential selection cycle because she wasn't running, but she's the uh, now senator from Nevada. What do you see when you look at her? Is that a likely choice? Well, I I see the uh, here here is a prominent Latina in the Senate. Uh, who has uh, some some experience, but has also moved up in the party sufficiently where uh, now she's the chair of the Senate uh, uh, Democrats campaign, uh, which you know means she has a lot of connections with uh, donors in the Democratic Party. So she's somebody that's that's already known uh, within the party. Uh, she does has has had the endorsement of Harry Reid. I'm not sure at this point how significant that will be, other than within the party leadership as her being a strong candidate. But I see in her what I don't necessarily see in the other candidates in that here is a very, very large constituency that's at play, uh, looking at Latino Americans and what their connection is or relationship might be to supporting a candidate. And and really the votes in that community across the country are, are you know swing all over the place, uh, depending on generation, depending on age group. Uh, but here might be a, a a way of mobilizing a group that has not been as mobilized in the last few elections uh, as they were earlier uh, with uh, with George Bush and his ability to connect uh, uh, with uh, Latino Americans. So I think this really gives her a, 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 an edge, uh, even though she may not be known uh, n- nationally by the general populace as much as she is uh, within her state and within um, uh, the Latino American community or, uh, uh, in this country. Uh, I just think that, that, that she has a lot going for her on a number of fronts and could very quickly be propelled out there and be someone that uh, not, doesn't necessarily have uh, the national notoriety and, and challenges that, say, maybe a Harris uh, or even a Klobuchar had in, in, in trying to run for president. Uh, here's someone that's in the Senate that could step up and uh, maybe be of tremendous benefit to uh, Biden's ticket. So I agree with you in that uh, she should be on the short list of probabilities here. There is a likelihood of her. And Biden has shown weakness with Hispanics who, who have supported Bernie Sanders in this Democratic primary quite a bit. So that would definitely help him. Uh, with that demographic group. Um, It's also an important group once you're going into the general election. If we look at Nevada as a swing state, 
Um, it's leaned Democratic recently. Uh, Hillary Clinton won it by 3.23%, but it would be one of these states we'd keep our eye on because it was within five percentage points last time, so that's good. But I've, I've got some thoughts here that we're also looking at a Senate that's going to be almost equally divided. Um, and if they're going to yank out a Democratic senator from a very competitive state, that opens up the possibility of losing that seat, that Senate seat. And we may be in a 50-50 split in the Senate or a 51-49 Senate. And so I think that's the risk with this choice is, yeah, you may have someone who might be a good VP pick for, for the Democratic Party, but you're risking that very close Senate seat in Nevada. Oh, yes, yes. Well, and that would be the case with at least three of the, the, the ones I have on my list. So uh, it would be trying to see which one has the edge over the other. Sure, sure. So look at who's next on your um, list. Well, well, I think uh, of that of that four, I think uh, uh, it's between Whitmer and, and Klobuchar. I'm, I'm a little concerned about Kamala Harris. I mean, I think there is some appeal there. There is the, the connection with the African-American community, but... Uh, Biden already has that uh, a strong level of support there. It could ex- certainly extend that, but I'm I'm just not sure on that because Harris had her own struggles uh, with appealing to voters in her uh, quest for the presidential nomination, and I'm just not sure how how much benefit that would be. Uh, she's from California. California is not a state that you, you really have to worry about in terms of right. the, the outcome. Uh, right. So that, that, that really puts her at a disadvantage, whereas uh, Whitmer and Klobuchar are all from areas, you know, Michigan most certainly. I mean, that, that, that one comes to the forefront because of the need to win Michigan, for Democrats to win Michigan to be really uh, think that they would be successful in winning the presidency. Yeah, I agree with your analysis there. Um, Kamala Harris doesn't deliver a state. Uh, California leans Democrat, Democratic very strongly. Um, her campaign really struggled. So while a lot of people thought, you know, she may be the presidential nominee, it fell apart. She didn't even get to Iowa, you know. Also, um, in the audio clip we played, um, Joe Biden is committing to having an African woman Supreme Court judge. That may be in advance trying to signal to that demographic group you'll get the you'll get something you'll get a supreme court judge which may mean he's not headed that direction his his support amongst african americans was relatively key to winning this nomination already so i would agree kamala harris i think would be unlikely now michigan when we look at the governor of michigan gretchen whitmer uh... michigan was a very close state in fact it was the closest of states in the two thousand sixteen cycle President Trump won it by 0.23%, and it's got 16 electoral votes. So it is a key state. Um, So I think that's where uh, Gretchen Whitmer becomes someone who should be uh, looked at as as probable here. She's going to impact a very key state, and other neighboring states are key states, too. Um, so again, this might be someone who's who's on Biden's radar. Uh, she's also, I believe, the only person with as a governor with a governor on their resume, and governor's pretty good for a resume. Yes, I I, I agree with that. That Colbusher, uh, uh, I think, fits in that same category. Uh, she had a strong uh, start to her campaign. Uh, I think that she showed herself on the national stage that uh, she can engage. Uh, with uh, uh, with at this level, uh, I think I think that uh, she could very well be uh, a possible nom- a nominee or at least a pick for the vice presidential uh, position. Uh, again, my concern here, and this is where uh, Cortez Masto and uh, even Harris maybe have an advantage in their connection with the broader constituencies that they could deliver. Uh, but the state's critical. Uh, Klobuchar. Uh, did I think gain some standing as someone who could step into that presidential role if if needed? Uh, but uh, we'll see how that weighs in the balance when they come to make a pick. Well, I agree that Senator Klobuchar is on the short list of probable candidates. It really surprised me when, after running for president for the better part of a year, she dropped out the night before she was going to win her home state and endorse Biden and effectively delivered that state to Joe Biden. It makes me wonder what conversations were going on behind the scenes for that to take place. Uh, So I definitely think she's on the short list. It helps that she was running for president and 
defied expectations for a while. She had a very good performance in uh, New Hampshire, remember. Um, so I, also, Minnesota, if you look at the history of presidential elections, it's the last state to ever vote Republican in the Electoral College. It's, it hasn't happened in a long time. But it's become very close. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton won Minnesota by only 1.74% last time. So I, I call it a swing state just because it, it has the potential to swing between the nominees. It hasn't historically been swinging, but it has the potential to swing. So she helps solidify Minnesota. And also she could have pretty decent appeal to neighboring Wisconsin, which is also a state that um, will be uh, an important swing state in this cycle. So I agree that she is um, on this short list of people who might be selected. Well, and you said you had uh, uh, six that you had on, on your list, and so that means there's a couple more here, or maybe even, I, I'm not sure if you had these four as well, but uh, but what what other ones do you see that might have an outside chance or even a strong chance of being in that uh, final group? Uh, for consideration. So all of these four uh, were in my six that I had uh, highlighted. So that's four of them down. There's only two more to go. One of them has been floated out there that is someone we're familiar with. Elizabeth Warren has been running for president. I've seen her presented on a lot of people's speculation. Um, I tend to think she won't be the pick. Uh, Massachusetts is not a key state here, but it would be a pick that would try to not appeal to the general electorate, but consolidate consolidate the Democratic Party if there was some major controversy with uh, Bernie Sanders supporters. She's someone who could appeal to them. But because of the this primary cycle, Biden is kind of headed for a, a kind of quote-unquote legitimate victory in terms of securing a majority of regular delegates, not super delegates. It may be that Joe Biden doesn't need to pick a VP nominee that consolidates the left wing of the party, he may already have much of that support. So Elizabeth Warren has been mentioned, but I don't think uh, it's probably the good tactical decision. Right. Yeah. And I, I would agree there. I also think that that uh, there's other factors that may bring more unity to the party uh, through not only the crisis that we're going through and uh, whatever direction of criticism or concern about how the Trump administration responds to it. Uh, I think there's other factors there that, that, that may influence that where there is more of a sense of unity. There's not a, a need to, uh, to, to in some way have an act of appeal. It's, it's so focused on winning the white house that, uh, some of those things are going to be secondary. Yeah, the other person on the shortlist that I've seen is Representative Val Demings in Florida. She represents Florida's 10th district out of Orlando. She's an African-American woman coming from humble beginnings, um, and she has law enforcement history as well. Um, so she was actually one of the impeachment managers in the Senate trial um, that, that was um, you know, uh, prosecuting President Trump in the Senate trial. Um, so she, one thing about her, she comes from Florida, and Florida is, is one of the bigger of the swing states. Uh, Florida has 29 electors up for grab, and it's a state that Trump, President Trump won last time by 1.2%. President Trump has now relocated to Florida. That's now his home state, not New York. So he's also um, has, a, has his own connection to Florida. But she's someone that's on the list. I think this is also an unlikely pick. She's a representative, not a senator. Um, and also, um, you know, the, we talked about that African-American dynamic. Uh, Joe Biden's already pledged to select an African-American woman to the Supreme Court, and he also excelled in the Democratic primary with that demographic group. Yes, I, I, I agree with that as well. I've seen her name floated out as well. And uh, But I, I just, yeah, again, the I think uh, it's a bigger challenge for name recognition notoriety uh, i was just thinking when you said the impeachment process and her being in that in, uh, impeachment one of the managers uh, that seems so long ago now <laughs> after all that we've been through here just in the last few weeks and uh, and even now the shift so dramatic as we talked about on the show that as soon as the impeachment trial was over the shift to focus on the presidential election and as we wrap up here i think we've got about four minutes left on the show for today uh, but i wanted, wanted to, to get your thoughts on uh you know here here we have this uh, uh national crisis and and 
uh, underneath that is the m- continuous move at some point, even more significant move toward a general election. And uh, I've, I've just been thinking about uh, some of the things that how this is impacting and making this a very unique election cycle. I mean, I think there are, there are other uh, aspects of that, but the fact that we have the, this crisis, uh, I was just wondering about your thoughts, and I have some as well, just on how, how does this change something that has been uh, uh, you know, uh, done in, a, in certain ways, in a certain process uh, for, for so long, even though we've had different challenges in the past. I noticed uh, one uh, story I was reading about where members of Congress were like, no, we're, you know, we had the general election in the civil, during the middle of the Civil War. We're going we're to have this election in November. But, but there's a lot that has, that has made this uh, very unique, at least in modern history, as a general election. I didn't know if you had some thoughts on that. Well, I would say this is one of the strengths of the Electoral College is that it can be conducted in a time of crisis. Um, Sometimes in a time of crisis, uh, popular voting is hard to pull off, like as in the Civil War. But that's not actually who selects the president and vice president. It's the Electoral College. So for the states to actually designate their electors and for the electors to vote in their state capitals, that's much more of a, a clear uh, process than holding popular elections in all the various areas. Having said that, we're in a time in the USA where there is still going to be this uh, definite demand to have popular elections to help select the electors uh, everywhere in the USA. But it creates this problem of voting. If we saw early on, we saw the governor of Ohio be one of the first to delay his primary election. He was criticized early for that, and the governor of Florida went ahead to have the election. But when election night actually came up, uh, the governor of Ohio is largely praised for having delayed to avoid um, any transmission of the virus, and the governor of Florida came under some criticism because a lot of poll workers didn't show up. A lot of poll workers are elderly and part of that vulnerable population, and they didn't sign up for exposure to co- coronavirus when they signed up to be an election poll worker, right? right. Um, so it creates a lot of challenge with popular voting and to have a, a vote process where people are able to safely cast their vote, given that all the social distancing protocols that are in place. Uh, people should know states have a lot of discretion in how they're going to do these uh, votes. In fact, it's the state governments that are empowered with this process to select electors, not necessarily any popular vote or the federal government. The states are powered, so we could see states vary in how they're going to handle this come November. Well, this will certainly be an issue that we'll come back to and give more attention as we move forward uh, to getting through this crisis and then on to a general election cycle. We want to thank you for joining us today on Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Tune in each week, Sunday at noon, right here on 90.5 KTRL-FM for Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.